This is the Tribal Malfunctions Podcast. Tribal Malfunctions is my cyberpunk novel about gangs, gang warfare, political conspiracy, terrorism, and the power of independent trucking in Boston in the 22nd century. It's by Chang Terhune and is read by Chang Terhune. And many say I may quite possibly be Chang Terhune, though often I find his methods devious, inscrutable, brilliantly insane, and often requiring copious amounts of red wine and chocolate. And hello everyone, good day, good evening, good night, and good beings. Uh, this is episode four of the Treble Malfunctions podcast, wherein I reach you from my unpublished yet frickin' awesome novel, uh, Tribal Malfunctions, which is a cyberpunk novel set in Boston about a hundred years from today in the year 2119. Um... We are up to episode four, and that's chapter four. So if you have not yet gotten into, uh, you know, the other three episodes, I'll give you a moment to catch up with that, all right? Um, it's about about a half hour each, so that gives you about an hour and a half. So I'll hang on a second while you do that. Okay, and that looks good. So I think we will begin with episode four. Hey, not that, you know, uh, anyone really seems to care about it, but I'll just let you know two things. One, the travel logs at the beginning of each episode, I think I may have mentioned this in the last one, uh, are designed to kind of give you a view into the world of tribal malfunctions in the world of a 21st, ooh, 22nd century Boston, because we're already living in 21st century uh, America. So, you know, that's the kind of thing that sets up each chapter. Um, so, and I'm kind of digging those. Those are kind of fun. The other thing is there's cussing and there's a decent amount because frankly, I like swearing um, and I think it's healthy. So, uh, you know, just bear that in mind if you play this around impressionable children or overly sensitive adults. Okay, so uh, let's get into it. Episode four, chapter four. What's going on with uh, Mr. A? following is an excerpt from BBC 11's broadcast Living Heavy, February 7th, 2091. An Asian-American teenage male standing on a Boston street corner with a brick wall behind him. Amid pedestrians walking by in shorts and light summer clothing, the youth wears a thick black coat despite the muggy August weather. His clean-shaven head shows little perspiration, though occasionally vents in his collar belch cool vapor as he speaks. His eyes are concealed behind wraparound black sunglasses with a stylized golden M on the earpieces. Now people get on your case just for being down and heavy, man. They don't realize what it's like, you know? They think we're all about being hard and everything, but it's not only that. People just don't understand. What does it mean to be a heavy boy? means you're part of a group, right? You got loyalty, you got belonging, and you got yourself a team. You got guys at your back. At your back? Are you under attack? Does that mean you need protection of some kind? So you are a gang, is that it? What? No, uh, no way. We're not a gang. Who said that? I didn't say we're a gang. I said we're a team. Uh, a group. Not a gang. You said gang, man, not me. Very well, then. But you do have interactions with other groups that have led to violent clashes and even deaths, correct? What? Yeah, I guess so. But doesn't everybody? Just because those punks from Kill or Be Kill come at us doesn't mean we're gonna just stand there and take it while they pull their voodoo on us. Would you just stand there some pale-ass 
with a cold skull painted on his face, came at you blowing some weird yellow black dust into your grill? No, probably not, but... Yeah, I thought so. But the heavy boy Credo is about standing tall, being down and heavy and holding your territory no matter what, isn't it? Yeah, but... So how does that reflect on the skirmishes you've had with other gangs in the area, such as M223, the Michael Ivies, and... See, there you go again, calling us a gang. Man, I swear, no one gets it. It's just like I told you. It's a lifestyle thing, man. It must mean if you ain't down and heavy, you, you ain't cleared to get the message or something. Now get the f*** off my... Since their first appearance in the late 2080s, heavy boys have been a growing fixture, and some say menace, on the streets of many cities of North America, Japan, and Europe. Their appearance is clearly marked by their shaved heads, heavy black coats worn year-round, and black wraparound sunglasses. Members are almost exclusively Asian or of partly Asian descent, with a large percentage coming from the Philippines and Pacific Island regions. Exact origins of the heavy boys are unknown, with several claiming to be the first heavy boy enclaves, or all bases, as they call them. In addition to numerous cities across Europe and Asia, American cities such as New York, Boston, Chicago, Los Angeles, Dallas, and Atlanta all claim ownership of the title Original Home of the Heavy Boys. Finding the source of the truth amongst the confusing and conflicting accounts of the various heavy boy factions and clans is difficult. BBC 11's Tara Ming continues her series on Boston's post-gang band culture and sets out to determine where truth ends and the lies begin in this short slice of life we call Living Heavy. Chapter 4. Inbound. Aris had a set routine that worked out well for him when he felt distracted and agitated. Sit down at his desk, plow into work, and repeat whenever he felt inclined to brood. He went out onto the floor more and more often, getting his hands dirty working on haulers, even though they had plenty of mechanics. Sometimes it took Wendell physically pulling him out from under a hauler to get him to stop. Yet for the following two weeks, he was distracted again and again by the Yuki Corps hauler and the dead man at the fence. The incongruity of it bothered him most. The fact that despite 15 years of building the Holy Ruler into something the brothers who started it 150 years before could have never envisioned, it only took a single weird event to knock Aris back into thinking about past failures and a life he thought he'd left behind for good. He knew that selling off the old gear, going into hiding, and cutting ties with whoever survived the big battle only got rid of physical traces. The 2105 gang ban helped, giving him extra reason to cover his tracks and hide his past history. Yet despite years of suppression, ghosts lingered on street corners where he'd stood, wearing adads and representing, even while steadfastly avoiding Boston like it was a plague camp staying on his side of the Charles River walls, no matter what. The truth was, he returned to work at the Holy Roller the day after the heavy boy life fell apart. Everything about the garage, the work, Mr. A's kindness, Manea's love, kept him alive and gave him hope for something new after that old life shattered. He loved his life now. He loved his kids, Manea, and the garage. Aris knew that if it all went away, he couldn't see much point in sticking around either. So Aris worked hard to protect that stability, something he'd never known much growing up and only tasted in the extended family of the Boston Massive. If anyone took a close look at Aris, something he worked very hard at preventing, they might find it odd that a man who worked so closely with drone auto haulers used very little technology otherwise. At the shop, he still ordered parts from vendors instead of using a faker to create them. He used more paper than almost any of the other businesses in Somerville combined. He made voice phone calls at the shop and used an antique phone he kept in his pocket, plus a roll-up tablet packed with the best possible anonymity software, not just for the intrusive ads that popped up in most public places, but just for keeping his online identity as low-profile as possible. 
Aris had no neural implants of any kind and made sure his regular medical checkups didn't leave any either. He lived his life a lot like someone from a hundred years before, with a minimal technological habit. Aris paused to wonder where he'd be if not for betrayal and the end of his crew. Dead? Maybe. Jail? More likely. A sentence of enforced chemical sleep for a period of no less than ten years, courtesy of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts? Most likely. Ending up as an elder statesman of the heavy boys, a silverback or an all-papa, in a polished carbon weave suit, parked in a throne while a dozen or so noobs mimicked his glower in a mobile stance? Perhaps. To Aris, especially now at his relatively advanced age, being a heavy boy was a young man's game. Other than the leaders like the all-papas and their hardened lieutenants, he'd always found older heavy boys kind of ridiculous, though he'd never say it to their faces. Hemi Time or Roland Danny would easily have pounded him or any other young buck if he questioned the most high of veteran heavy boys. Yet it still burned in him like one of those landfill fires rolling out of control under the soggy ruins of Danvers. At times like this, he knew the burn was barely tamped down by an affected distraction as bad as the affected disdain he wore as a young man, fueled by the humiliation at the big battle and his rumored part in it. He resigned himself years ago to the fact that it was something he'd never redeem himself for. So be it, he thought. Our aside, and taking up the reins of an adult life, coordinated an order of guide wheels from Japan. A couple hours later, after checking on a mechanic's question about a leaking coolant gasket, he stalked out to the yard with a cigarette he cadged from the young boy in return. As he smoked on the garage's back dock, with its evercrete surface stained from oil and burn marks from the thousands of haulers that they'd serviced over the years, he looked out over his kingdom. Aris faced west towards Pearl Street, watching the sunset over the old Somerville High School at the top of the hill. Shadows gathered, turning everything blue to purple and black before the icy streetlights came on to shoo off the dark. Across the street sat the meager excuse for a park. Beyond it was the Marshall Street tea stop. Just behind that sat the locked doors for the Wormway's dedicated exit ramp, right to his garage. He watched two figures walk up the stairs to the tea stop on the inbound side, then stopped near the shelter facing him. Aris' own body responded with a similar stance, his legs tightening and a familiar clenching in the jaw to activate his shades, old habits giving him an undead twitch. These were quite possibly the same heavy boys he'd seen the night before when the goons tried to break into the yard. He wondered if they were new to the area. No heavy boy had shown themselves in public for the last 15 years without being almost immediately arrested. He'd purposely gotten out of the habit of keeping an eye out for heavy boys in that time while keeping himself out of sight. He watched them standing stock still, that most valuable heavy boy trait. His own body began to mimic their movements and revive forms he thought were long dead inside him, never to be reused. There, in the growing cold and gloom of night, he allowed himself a momentary lapse into a past life, reliving the years when he lived to stand tall and heavy, his height and weight amplified and modified by salvaged, or more often, stolen electronics and military surplus woven into the heavy black coats of he and his comrades. Aris envied them in their defiant immobility, and shook for a moment, not from cold, but from fear at how alive it became in him. His cigarette was nearly down to the filter. Aris scraped the coal on the wall, adding to a long, tarry smear left by countless other smokers, then threw it in a rusted butt can left by the door, almost as old as the garage itself, before going back inside. The auto hauler, Yuki Core 9421, came through Holy Roller Garage twice in December for minor maintenance along with 3,500 other haulers. 
Each time, it was in and out in less than six hours. Aris checked it both times to find the brain pan and its protective sheet hadn't been violated. Its original owner and manufacturer seals were also still intact. Despite wanting to check it out further, his workload and disinterest in arousing suspicion kept him at his desk. One Tuesday morning in January, Wendell leaned into the doorway, hanging his lanky body off a hand gripping the doorframe. "'Yo, Mr. Ray,' he said. "'Yeah,' Aris answered, not looking up from the screen. "'I got something for you.' A twinkle in Wendell's eyes made Aris frown. But he stood anyway, took a sip of coffee to fortify himself. He followed Wendell through the garage, down to Wendell's bay. Aris looked at the butt end of the hauler and squinted. "'Is that the one?' he shouted over the garage's noise. "'The very same,' said Wendell, flashing the broad white smile that Manea claimed did nothing for her despite her and Wendell's flirting. Aris never minded this, as Wendell's husband was the same height as Manea, but bald as a rock. "'Same problem?' asked Aris. He followed Wendell into the slot under the hauler. "'Nah,' said Wendell. "'Banged up Ox supporting gear.' "'The fuck?' This is something that kid Jabril could handle, said Aris. You know, the one who's always high. Why drag me out of my office for this? Wendell stayed silent so long, Aris could almost hear him smiling in the dark. Aris swore under his breath while something in his gut uncoiled in excitement. Wendell had taken the access hatch off. An ancient yellow utility light gantry behind him shined garish white light up into the hauler's belly. Aris climbed up inside to perch on the edge of another adjoining panel. He leaned back to get a clear look at the support gear tucked into the back. Seriously, Wendell, my kid could do this job with his hands tied behind... Oh. Aris peered closer into the hauler's propulsion compartment. The gold sheet was slashed down the center, its protective panel nowhere in sight. There were a few distinct spatters of blood on the gold like chocolate left in a discarded candy wrapper. The interior of the hauler's brain sat glistening in the light, like a metallic paste. Another rectangular glyph was drawn by the open panel's edge in silver paint. You find it like this? he asked Wendell, his throat dry. Sir, yes, sir, said Wendell. Took pictures as I went along and everything. Aris stared at it. What's the diagnostic look like? Total fucking mess, said Wendell, laughing. Aris looked down, and despite light shining up into his eyes, he could see the broad enamel expanse of Wendell's smile. Aris climbed down and took a seat at the deck, waving a hand to bring it to life. Sure enough, the screen coughed up line after garbled line, messy characters that could have been from another language, were there not forty different ones up there. What the hell, said Aris. That's what I said, replied Wendell. How it could move when it's that messed up is beyond me. The actual repairs are minimal, but this? You got the ticket? asked Aris. Right here. Aris pecked out a rhythm, and the work order appeared before him. Repair and maintenance order 6679BB-I278. Yukikor Auto Hauler 9421. Slipped aux supporting gear placement. Misalignment and guidance coil left. As straightforward as it gets, Aris thought to himself. So that's it, huh? He said aloud. Yep. Nothing about a burst CPU housing, said Aris. No, sir. So what the fuck, Wendell? You got me. Aris flipped to the dialogue screen again, taking in the garbled communication. All right, do the work, but then put this out in the yard. What are you going to do? I'm going to call Yukikor again. What do you think? said Aris, rising from the seat. And if they send another pair of Ktils out? I don't think Yukikor really sent those guys. But if anyone does come calling this time, we shock them on the doormat, then maybe I'll call the cops. Back at his desk, Aris ignored Manea's quizzical glance, just the same old professional self he'd been since he started working at the garage. He grabbed the ancient phone's handset and looked up Yukikor's number from the service ticket. He dialed it and leaned back in the chair. A phone call? Again? She said from behind him. You really are becoming my dad. 
I wish, said Aris, half joking. He looked up at the picture of Mr. A over the door and frowned. What would you have done? He asked it silently. Hello. Thank you for calling Yuki Corps, said a voice. He looked back to his desk to see the image of a pan-Asian woman hovering over his phone's display. How may I help you? Yeah, hi. I'm calling from Holy Roller Garage in Somerville, Massachusetts. Yes. Just a moment. Yes. Holy Roller Garage. Is it Mr. Aguilar that I'm speaking with? The construct's millisecond pauses between the words as it drew up his information annoyed him for some reason, despite dealing with these personas all his life. Yeah, that's right. How may I help you today, Mr. Aguilar? She asked. He knew it wasn't really a woman, but a pleasant front for an AI administrative system, which wasn't there the last time he called. Got a hauler of yours up here, Unit 9421? Yes. Yes. Unit 9421. I see it has made a repair stop in Somerville, Massachusetts. Is this correct? Yeah. And how may I help you, Mr. Aguilar? Well, it came in for minor repairs, but there's something wrong with it. All right. That is unfortunate. Could you please tell me what is the matter with the vehicle? The robotic concern further annoyed Aris. Yeah, its brains are scrambled. I'm sorry. Could you repeat that, please? The CPU shield is torn. It looks like someone or something's been tampering with the CPU and the driver unit. All right, that is not good. Please hold a moment. The face blinked, then looked down for a second before looking at Aris again. I see no record of this error. Was there perhaps an incident at your facility? Mechanical or human error? No, said Aris. My mechanic took pictures of the entire disassembly procedure. All right. Very good. Please hold, said the construct. Is the unit immobile? Yeah, said Aris. It's a wonder it didn't get into an accident down in the wormway. Do you mean that normal automotive functions are impaired? Said the construct. What a stupid question. Yeah, that's what I meant. All right. Please hold. Again, the construct performed a fake look at its invisible records below. Independent hauler towing of Chelsea, Massachusetts, will retrieve the vehicle tomorrow morning at 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. You're not going to send some guys around like last time, he said, then instantly regretted it. The face, this was impossible, but he swore he saw it, seemed to brighten a few shades and stare more intently at him. Excuse me? It asked. Please repeat your last sentence. I didn't quite understand that. Never mind, said Aris. 6 a.m. the tow arrives? 8 a.m., sir. Very good. Thank you. Here is a confirmation number. Aris hung up, and the face and voice disappeared with a crackle and a click. He turned back to Manea. Well, that was interesting, she said. Can say that again, said Aris. No answer last time. Now I get a construct that's curious. Weird game they're running down in New York. Manea shook her head and went back to her own work. At four that afternoon, Aris went back to Wendell's Bay, where he found him closing up a scarred and battered Pizza Palace hauler. What's up, boss, said Wendell, wiping his hands on a rag. Where's our uh, special guest? Wendell frowned. Yuki Core 4291, said Aris. The hauler. Oh, yeah. Out back, said Wendell, jerking his head to the right. Left it near the gate by the pile of broken bogey assemblies. Thanks, said Aris. You gonna take it out for a spin? Ha. Funny. Just gotta check the mileage. Aris held out his hand. Wendell looked at it before sighing, rolling his eyes, then handing Aris a cigarette from the pack in his vest pocket. Wendell laughed before ducking back into the bay. 
Aris tugged his blue parka around him and stepped out into a cold as stark as the moon's surface. The sun couldn't pierce the veil of thick, clotted clouds obscuring it, turning the sky into a white circular smear in the midst of a lot of gray. A wind, vicious and steady, blew in from the north, egged on by the empty carcasses of auto haulers forgotten and laid to rest. Fragments and flakes of snow spit around him. Aris drew the collar around his ears, then walked fast into the depths of the yard. He found 4291 almost at the end. Why Wendell tucked it all by the back gate with the broken bogey assemblies was beyond him, but he'd deal with Wendell later. Aris crouched, crunching through cold snow, then ducking below the hauler. He undid the access panels and shined a light up inside. Nothing awry, and of course Wendell had fixed everything upright, but the cold was distracting him from getting what he wanted. Without a step stool, it'd be a struggle to get to the brain. Aris swore, trying to get as comfortable as he could. Normally, a tech would access it via the overhead panel in the cargo bay for service or replacement, but the hauler was full this time, which made it impossible for two reasons. One was practical. He had no room to temporarily move its tonnage of cargo. The other was legal. Entering a hauler's cargo space without permission of the hauler's owner or the owner of the cargo was enough to get a garage shut down and its owner thrown in jail. Whatever or whoever was going at it from underneath knew this as well as he did. They either didn't want the cargo disturbed or were perhaps trying to get it but were thwarted. Aris blew warm air into his hands, flipped the panel with the warning decal open, then attached a couple cables from his Diag kit to their corresponding sockets. He tapped at the keypad a few times, but nothing happened. Aris rechecked the wires for loose sockets. For three seconds, there was a flash of light, then a child's voice. Aris was so startled, he nearly dropped the kit. He checked the connections, then ran another test. After a few flashes, a holograph flickered, then stabilized in front of him. A ghostly white child, seated in a lotus position. The face was bright, the eyes wide and eager. Yuki says we're gonna go to the moon, said the child with a young boy's voice. What the fuck? Aris said aloud, leaning back from the apparition. It flickered, then disappeared. He jiggled the cable and tried to connect to the hauler with the black box once more. This time, there was a flash of text from the detailed itinerary of the hauler's route. Then, the holographic boy returned. Yuki said we're gonna go to the moon, the boy said again. So you said, muttered Aris, trying to see the actual recorder amidst the slab of circuit boards and wires. Yeah, we're gonna go to the moon, and I'm gonna fly us there, said the voice. I'm gonna do a great job. I'm a smart boy. Sure, kid, whispered Aris. The holograph disappeared, replaced with a line-by-line -line route path and itinerary. An icon on his diag kit told him it was finally downloading. He tried to get the weird holograph back to no avail. He noticed an unfamiliar silver box jammed into the array. Aris tapped at it while peering closer. It was featureless and could have been from anywhere. The box bore no exterior markings and was connected to the main brain by a simple network cable. After one last unsuccessful try to resurrect the boy ghost, Aris packed up the Diag kit, sealed the CPU in, and began to close up the space. He wiped down whatever he touched furiously, not that anyone would check it for fingerprints. He slid down to the ground and locked the hauler's guts up, making sure to add his entrance to the maintenance log. As he scrambled from under the hulking vehicle, he glanced out west over the expanse of the yard. The T-stop sat just in front of the mouth of the wormway where two stout black figures stood on the platform, heads bare despite the cold, their coats flat black surface insulated from the bitter weather. He walked back down the length of the alley, broken and forgotten machines to either side of him, returning to the warmth of the garage and his office.
Aris wasn't actually certain what possessed him to risk the exposure, only that it seemed to be the right thing and yet the most dangerous thing to do at the same time. You coming or what? asked Manea, standing by his desk with her coat in hand. Aris looked up from his deck. Huh? Coming? Home? End of day? Dinner? Me? Your wife? Your family? she said. Aris looked around. The bays were empty. The garage had gone dark and silent around him. Oh, uh... Aris looked at his monitor, then up at Minea. No, not yet. I gotta finish up some things. Minea gave him a look, then bent down to kiss his head. I'm making spaghetti and meatballs, so don't be late or I'll give them to the dog, she said as she left. We don't have a dog, he replied, but she was out of earshot by then. He heard the heavy door close behind her, and then he was all alone in the silence of the garage. Eventually, Aris got up, switched off the main lights, leaving only exit lamps and a few others along the length of the garage alight. He armed the fence security, then sat back down at his desk. Aris pulled the Diag kit from under a parts catalog, plugging it into his deck. He waited as it connected, then a window opened. Rows of numbers and data streamed down before him, which he then copied and pasted into another program. In a second, he was looking at the hauler's route in detail. Yukikor 9421 entered the Wormway from a capillary on-off point in the Bronx, New York. From there, it traveled under the city through northern Manhattan into New England. It made it all the way to just south of Boston before an irregularity occurred. Then it automatically detoured itself to the nearest garage, the Holy Roller, for repairs. Aris wished he'd thought of checking the route the first time it came in. It'd probably show him the same path. He stared into the garage's empty darkness. What was the deal with this hauler? First it deadheads almost to free Canada, then gets hacked. It's sent out, gets hacked again, probably in the same place. So not only were the owners sending it out with bogus information, but also someone in Boston was trying to get at it along the way. Then there was the little boy hologram saying something about Yuki taking them to the moon. It was about the weirdest thing he'd seen since taking over the garage, even weirder than a hauler full of live hippos he'd once encountered. Haulers never had anything more than the dumbest interface possible due to cost and practicality. The only people who ever came into contact with one were mechanics who didn't need to see a pretty face to diagnose an issue with an auto hauler, let alone a weird Buddha boy. And the gibberish it was spouting out. Ara's stomach growled. His heavy, sore eyelids told him he'd put in a full day. He rubbed his eyes, then stood, grabbing his coat and hat. He left the garage, locking the door, then disarming and rearming the security fence. He stood for a moment in the cold. Around him, the immediate area was quiet, but for distant highway noise and the constant subterranean rumble of the wormway where it ran closer to the surface. Standing under the icy blue utility light hanging over the doorway, he thought of Yukikor 9421 in the yard behind him and what happened during its last overnight stay. The security cameras didn't extend that far into the yard. For a moment, he thought of unlocking the door, putting on a fresh pot of coffee, and keeping an eye on the screens for the night. But he didn't want to spend a night watching it. Besides, Menea would get suspicious, and he'd probably fall asleep anyway. To his right, on the T-platform, were the two black-clad figures standing just like hours before. Aris felt a weird tingling in the back of his neck, like fingers trailing lightly on his skin, or, or when his old Moak Shades interface cables went looking for the suit socket. At the station... Aris slipped his hand over the fare reader, then walked through the turnstile to the platform. He went to the shelter with its graffiti-streaked, cracked glass interior and sat down. He unrolled his tablet to the news, but didn't read anything. Aris's eyes were focused on the pair of heavy boys across the way. 
They weren't anyone he recognized from back in the day, but then this wasn't his turf. He'd been a member of Boston Massive. He couldn't remember if there were even heavy boys over here when he was active. The battle with New York crushed the Boston posse, sending the remnants into hiding. He doubted anyone had come back or resurfaced since then. His occasional checks in the news didn't turn up any familiar names, faces, or even aliases. There were other gangs in the greater Boston area back then, protecting or ruining neighborhoods depending on who you asked. M223, Diversion, The Most Excellent, Kill or Be Killed, Colombianistos, Tiger Doubles, Death from Above, and the Hemingway Horrors roamed the streets and gave the police plenty of hassle. From what he could tell, there was a vacuum where the gangs had been, and none dared to fill that. Aris shivered in his coat, then checked his watch. Menea would be calling soon. As he stood, a train approached, the automatic voice Doppler shifting the station's name towards, then away from him as it coasted to a stop at the platform. As the doors opened and people exited, Aris stepped into the train, then crossed through the doors to emerge on the opposite platform. The doors closed and the train sped off, synthetic voice announcing its next stop like a distant ghost. The heavy boys stood 50 feet away from him. Aris took a deep breath and exhaled a foggy stream while walking towards them. As expected, they did nothing as he approached. Typical heavy boy behavior right out of a playbook he was taught from. Ignoring civilians was ideal. Do not acknowledge someone who wasn't down and heavy like you. But he stood right next to them for a few minutes, just inside normal human public space, listening to the nearly inaudible, insectile chatter of their encrypted conversation as they muttered to each other. Eventually, the smaller of the two twitched ever so slightly to his left, looking at Aris while trying not to look at him. The bigger one nudged him, and then may have silently direct-messaged him. Suddenly, the little one stood straighter, not a buzzing sound heard between them. In his head, Aris named the smaller one Pico, and the bigger one Macro. Best to move along, Barney. Macro spoke, while barely moving his lips. My name isn't Barney, said Aris. He remembered the epithet came from Judge Barney Chow, whose efforts to take down the Boston gangs earned him five assassination attempts, the final one being successful. Aris remembered being repulsed by the hit, which took place at an ice cream parlor on the South Shore with Judge Chow's grandchildren present. The Nolan Miles took responsibility and paid the price in years to come with extra police harassment and their eventual extinction. Don't care what your name is, said Macro, but keeping your face in our airspace will invite a most righteous and unwelcome retaliation. Despite memories of his own threats and reprisals on people who stepped too close, Aris held his ground. Got some big brass spheres to be hanging out in the open in Unif, boys. Aris smiled lazily. It's like you want the BPD to put you to bed out in the harbor pens for a few years or something. They remained still, like the squat models for those Easter Island statues he'd loved as a kid that he used to climb all over. The one that that billionaire had shipped to the common when the island was overrun by the rising oceans. Those the Generation 5 mokes you're wearing? Aris asked. Pico flinched, which Aris had hoped for. He continued. Yeah, I, I thought so. Heard the resolution is stellar. Makes the fours look like a little spy camera on a cloudy day, am I right? Macro remained unmoved, but Pico nearly quivered with desire to answer him. The only thing a heavy boy liked to talk about more than music, violence, sex, or drugs was their gear. Aris figured Pico was a newer recruit by a year or less. Macro might have been down and heavy for two and a half years or more. Yeah, I used to have me a nice pair of mokes. Nothing. No reaction. Used to sink him with a pair of no-tone Cyclops. Vintage, I know, man, but that was a pretty slick array, Kano. Macro broke his stance. 
perfectly turning his fat, shiny skull towards Aris like a hawk. Anyone can crack a catalog and pray to the specs, Barney, he said. But it takes more than that to make you down and heavy. For the last time, move along or get painfully refitted for dead or just but ugly. He snapped his head back. Aris held fast, even though he knew a single step or a backhand swat by Macro could break him up enough for a long stay in the mending bed at St. Alice's up on Highland Avenue. Oh, yeah, I know, he said, but like I said, I ain't a Barney. Aris pulled both hands from his pockets, which got their full attention as he hoped. Macro and Pico flinched, expecting him to have a weapon. Holding his hands close to his chest, he threw a complex series of signs at them which, to the naked eye, would look like spastic gestures from a guy in greasy overalls and worn boots. But these boys wore high-end optics. He finished the sequence of gestures he spent two years learning as a boy, then let his arms drop, hoping the sequence wasn't out of date. Pico looked up at Macro, and after a minute, Macro grunted something across their encrypted channel. Impressive, he said aloud. But dropping that when you're in civilian gear? Timpang, man. Bad move. Says the guy in full fucking unif in public. Gangban is still alive and well, my friend. Aris shrugged. Had to be done. What house do you stand with? Macro asked. Don't stand no more, said Aris. Macro frowned. Then what are you doing here? His tone was sharp and dark. You a snitch looking for new breathing holes? Nope, said Aris. Who do you stand with? Macro gave it some thought. Who's asking? Aris sighed, then threw another tight series of gestures. Both Macro and Pico's eyebrows rose from behind their glasses frames. Macro's were fiery red while Pico's were thin black. Come again? Macro asked. You saw it, said Aris. He glanced around the platform for a second. Future Pop. He wished he'd said it with more force than fear for the first time in so many years. Silence fell over the platform like someone dropped a glass dome on it. He heard distant sounds like they were in an arena, him and these two decked out in pulverizing gear. Heard you were dead, said Pico. Heard you bent over for NYC and gave him codes for Boston's wall formations, said Macro. He withdrew a meaty fist from his coat pocket and flexed. Aris should have been scared. One of Macro's fingers was as thick as his wrist. No, not quite, said Aris, shaking his head. He didn't know the rumors had gotten that malignant. Not a lot of us left after that battle. Very little eye time. I got duped like everyone else. Turns out my girl was in bed with New York. Pretty big bed, said Pico with a snicker. She heavy without the coat? I mean, is she a thick? Aris moved quickly, hoping the noobs would be in double weight mode from the slowness of their movements. He threw an elbow out at Pico and felt the boy's nose crumble underneath it. Before Macro could react, he had a hand under Pico's collar. Easy dog, he said. These fat suits are the same model mine was. C935s, right? Yep, yeah, thought so. Emergency inflation button right under my thumb here. Aris flecked and Pico squeaked. For when the miners using them on pressurized asteroid caverns hit a breach, pull your head, arms, and legs in, then roll up in a little ball until the search and rescue teams come for you. Closes up nice and quick, right? Fine if you duck your head down and can hit it in time to seal the collar off. But if you're not fast enough? He made a sound like sludge going down a drain, ended it with a pop, and glared at Macro. Fuck with me, pate tao, and your boy's head will come off like a grape. Got it? Seconds played out slow. No one moved. Aris was out of practice wavering under a sheen of sweat building inside his coat as wisps of steam flipped off his face. Finally, Macro exhaled. Barney wouldn't know that move, I guess. 
He was trying to play it cool. So goody good for you. Let my boy go and state your business. Aris slid his hand from Pico's collar, wiping sweat on the coat's shiny surface. Don't ever say that shit again, Aris said, pointing at Pico. I don't know what kind of duke you hear guys spewing, but it didn't go down like that. Lost most of my crew to NYC that night. So I heard, said Macro. So how do you hail, said Aris. Nine knives. He's Tai Tai, said Macro, pointing at his friend, who held his nose in place, hands smeared with freezing and steaming blood. Sorry about your crew. Ancient history, said Aris, nodding at Tai Tai. How large do you roll? Twenty wide, three deep. Sixty. Bigger crew than his back in the day. You all heavy? He asked. Nine knives shifted. Got a lot of new recruits, most out of suit, running deals, proving their meat and earning their seat. Usually go unif and private, but you know, I ain't afraid of BPD. So you coming back from the dead or what? Asked Nine Knives, weak threat in his tone. Seen you guys holding down here recently. You're all based nearby? Asked Aris. Uh-uh, said Nine Knives, shaking his head and smirking. Privileged information. Insufficient clearance. Whatever, said Aris. Here's the deal. Like I said, seen you hold court here, right? I own that garage over there, he said, pointing behind him. They both nodded. I need some eyes on the place. You got cameras, Barn- Bro? Cameras got eyes, said Nine Knives. Cobb's got eyes, too, said Tai Tai. How about you buy some time with Woodski? Need better eyes, said Aras. Down in heavy eyes. Bagged with caused, butterfucker, Tai Tai said through the blood. So does a doctor. The little one, all of fifteen, maybe, shut it down. My boy's right, said Nine Knives. You need our eyes, then you pay for them eyes. Aris took out a pair of white plastic cards, each printed with a large green 100 on the surface. Bit cards, good anywhere on Earth, Moon, Mars, Europa Drop City, and the Venus Ring Station, he said. The heavy boys took interest, nodded. Aris held them out, and Tai Tai grabbed them. Thug, Tai Tai said, holding only half of the cards. Must be a real bold flush crew, said Aris. Never seen one before? Tai Tai stayed quiet, sheepishly looking at the half card. You got the challenge half. I got the response. Aris pocketed his half. Keep an eye on my place. You see anything, hit record and send it to that email on the sign there, right? He pointed behind him, knowing they'd already gotten the address off the sign. Better yet, I'll check in with you tomorrow, round lunchtime. Back room in the paddock, he pointed down Marshall Street, past his garage, to a restaurant near the far end of the yard's corner. Menea hated it, but Aris loved the Korean-Brazilian barbecue they served. Deal, said Nine Knives. But you wilt on us, Barney? I'm putting a man-sized hole in your face. Aris considered dismantling the threat with logic, but let the bigger man think he'd scored some fear from him. Deal, said Aris. They each threw a sequence of gestures, a binding agreement. See you tomorrow. You got it, Barty, said Tai Tai. Aris glared at him. Not too late to bust that gourd, Keiko. Tai Tai stepped behind Nine Knives. Name's Aris now. Don't forget it. But ain't you future- No, said Aris, shaking his head while making a curt cutting gesture at the air. That guy's gone. He started to walk away, then turned back to them. But you can tell everyone at your all base that he ain't dead. He's just different now. And if I hear anyone say I bent and sucked it for NYC, then I'll put a man-sized hole in each and every one of your fucking faces.
Oh, it is on like donkey to the Kong. Yep, it was episode four, chapter four, inbound of the book, Tribal Malfunctions, that I, Cheng Terhune, wrote and that you just listened to. I hope you enjoyed it. A lot of interesting stuff is starting to happen in the story, and it's only going to get more and more interesting -er (laughs) as time goes on. A couple quick notes. Um, if you go to the website, my website, charlesrterhune.com, and go to the blog, you will see a listing there for uh, all the songs uh, that were put in the podcast. Um, they're all by me. Um, you can also, and you can find links there to download them and purchase them. Uh, you can also find those on the discography section of the music section of my website. Um, and, you know, I, I keep it real here. I, I keep it authentic, which is why you're occasionally going to hear, say, the dog snoring in the background. Or uh, you're going to hear maybe uh, some tinkling of dog chains and stuff or as he goes up and down the stairs as he patrols the house for uh, agents of Daesh and Al-Qaeda. Uh, anyway, uh, keep listening. Next week is episode four and, uh, oh, sorry, episode five. Ooh, and it's going to start getting really interesting soon. Uh, even more so. Uh, a lot of cool stuff begins to happen in the book. Uh, and the podcast, the episodes are going to start to get longer. I'm going to keep them around an hour. I think that's reasonable. Um, for each chapter, uh, for each episode, so I might have to break some chapters up, but you never know. Anyway, uh, my name is Chang Trehune. I thank you for listening, and I want you to keep listening and tune in next week for another episode of Tribal Malfunctions. Namaste. Keep it real.